Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Mulford, and this is Trium Connects, a new podcast for the Trium community. Now, you can learn to recognize those traps, but that's not going to solve your problem. What is going to solve your problem is if you rethink how you make decisions. If it's so obvious to me that this is a stupid mistake, why are these incredibly accomplished people making them? So I want to start with you imagining a situation. This scene is from Shanghai last year. So I go to dinner. It's one of these dinners that has a really long table with like eight to 10 people on it. Anybody who's been to Triumph knows what I'm talking about. And the table's uh, way too long for uh, one conversation to happen at the whole table. So it breaks into little conversations all around the table. And you eat uh, some fantastic food and you listen to some wonderful conversations. And at this particular dinner, I was on the end and I was sitting with Andrew Walter and Jian Zhang and Titian Pungsadirik. Uh, and they, I just was listening. I, I wasn't really taking part in the conversation because I, it, they were talking about something I don't really know that much about, but they were talking about the future of kind of export-led economies in Asia and potential sources of instability in the region. They're talking about the kind of similarities and differences of the military's role in the socioeconomic and kind of business world of Thailand versus Miramar. Just talking about the potential consequences of the diminishing role of the U.S. as a kind of power player in the regional security. And this this conversation was all woven into kind of general conversations about families and absent friends and the weather in Shanghai and where was a good place to eat, etc. And I'm sitting there and there's the clink of glasses and I'm looking at my fantastic meal and looking around the sparkling restaurant and listening to the sparkling conversation. I just re- remember thinking this is this is what it's about. This is this is what makes me such a lucky person. I mean, I'm sitting here in Shanghai having a fantastic meal of learning about new connections and complexities about the region from three of the world's top experts on the topic, things that I didn't really know about, but I could almost feel my kind of knowledge growing inside me about these things. And it was just fantastic. I was getting food for <laughs> both my stomach uh, and my mind. And as I look to Trium now in the age of covid you know, those conversations, those face-to-face meetings, those those chats that happen at the break and that at lunch sometimes and over dinner, or maybe over drinks, and you catch somebody at breakfast, and, and those conversations, sometimes banal, sometimes not kind of trivial, sometimes fantastic, but, you know, there's those moments where those conversations lead to insight and to growth and to knowledge and to true friendships. And and this is what I'm missing from Trium. So the real challenge that we had as we entered into this kind of lockdown where we knew we were going to be away from you guys for quite a while, there's a challenge of how do we how do we replicate those conversations? And sadly the real answer is that it's really, really difficult. But we can try and what we can try to do is reproduce the setting in that restaurant where you might not be taking active part in the conversation, but 
you can be listening to what we hope are some interesting conversations that will lead to those moments where you say to yourself, this, this, is, this is it. This is why I'm doing this. This is providing me growth that I was longing for and what probably drove me to sign up for this degree anyway. And that's what we're going to try to do with these podcasts. So as you listen to these conversations, and, and we really hope that you do, try to imagine that you're in a trium module. You're sitting at a table or you're sitting at a, a restaurant, you're sitting at a break, and you're talking about things with people who have knowledge that you don't, they're willing to share it, and it becomes a, a fantastic exchange. To start with, we'll be posting these conversations about once a month. I have selected some guests that I think that you will find interesting, and also because they have some interesting things to say about our current situation and all the uncertainty that we're living through. Please let us know what you think. Any feedback would be fantastic. I know the Trium audience well enough to know that I don't have to be too enthusiastic in my requests for feedback. Uh, I know that you guys will give us some, so we really look forward to that. And now, without any further ado, allow me to introduce today's guest. Olivier Siboni is an affiliate professor at HEC in Paris. He is a writer, educator, and consultant specializing in strategy, strategic decision-making, and the organization of decision processes. Olivier didn't start his career in academia. In fact, from 1991 to 2015, Olivier was a consultant partner and director in the Paris, New York, and Brussels office of McKinsey & Co. And among other roles, he served there as a global leader of the corporate strategy practice, as a European leader of the consumer sector, and as a member of the firm's global partner review committee. He, along with Dan Lavolo and Daniel Kahneman, are founding members of the field of behavioral strategy. In our conversation, we discuss how he became interested in decision-making and what led him to leave a really very successful career at McKinsey for what has turned out to be an equally successful career in academia. Olivier shares what he sees as the key differences and misunderstandings between the two worlds of people who do business and those who study business. And in fact, we talk a lot about the importance of people who kind of live at the edge of these two worlds. And that at the edge of these two worlds is where much of the value from both can be leveraged for each. And that's kind of where we always position Trium. And so it's a great start to the podcast to have Olivier on board. We also discuss the quality or lack thereof of the decision-making leadership around our current pandemic and what the situation may tell us about dealing with the existential threat of climate change. I found the conversation to be full of really good analysis and insights, and I hope you enjoy it. And now, my conversation with Olivier Siboni. Olivier, thank you for joining the first ever uh, Trium podcast. Thank you, Matt. It's an honor. Well, it's, it's great to have you. And uh, congratulations very much on your uh, webinar, the HEC, I think it's called Decision Making and Cognitive Biases, the Example of COVID-19. It's currently only in French, but I was pretty amazed. I looked this morning. It has 270,000 views so far. So that's fantastic. Yeah, and it's not even a video of my cat. So for, <laughs> for something on YouTube that is, you know, that is a, a one-hour conference on 
on a fairly uh, dry subject, it's, uh, I was very surprised. We're actually going to uh, have an English version put online in about two weeks. So oh, that fantastic. will be available to our Trium community as well. And does that have a, uh, do you have a release date on that so far or is it just sometime soon? It's June 11. It's June 11. June 11. All right. That's fantastic. No, I, it's just amazing. That's uh, and uh, ho- let's let's shoot for half a million on that one. That would be fantastic. Let's shoot for at least that. <laughs> <laughs> and and I see that uh, again it, to follow the theme. Your your English version of your book. Uh, you're about to make a big mistake. It's coming out soon as well. Is that right? Yeah. So on July 14th, which is a complete coincidence, it's not because I'm French, they assure me, <laughs> my uh, US publisher, Little Brown, is uh, releasing the English translation of my first French book, which will be called You're About to Make a Terrible Mistake, uh, and which uh, talks about the impact of cognitive biases on strategic decisions, so what is now commonly called behavioral strategy and covers uh, a number of examples of such mistakes and more importantly uh, a large number about 40 different tools and techniques that executives can use to improve the quality of the decision making by overcoming the problems that these biases create that's fantastic and and i know that it's available for pre-order right now on amazon anyway Um, it's available for pre-order in as large quantities as you want yes (laughs) (laughs) all right well that's that's the plug the plug out of the way but i I, i'm sure it's going to be fantastic and i i have my pre-order in and i'm looking forward to reading the book but i i want to start first with your time at mckinsey um when you were there um what got you interested in the topic, as you say, behavioral strategy? What 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 led you to that? I mean, did you start in the in that field, or did something happen that? Well, led the you field to- didn't exist. Uh, the, I was just um, uh, reading a paper recently that uh, one of the top scholars in the field was proposing to uh, to use to update the Wikipedia entry on behavioral strategy, and that paper was saying that the first known use of the term behavioral strategy was in a paper that Dan Lovallo and I wrote for the McKinsey Quarterly, which is of course not an academic publication, but it was followed soon thereafter by an academic publication. So I wasn't interested in behavioral strategy because it didn't exist. What I was very interested in from my first day in the firm was the fact that very smart people, our clients, were sometimes making very silly mistakes that even you know, a bright-eyed kid like me could see. And I was thinking, look, if it's so obvious to me, and I know nothing, I'm, <laughs> I'm a 20-something beginner here. Um, if, if it's so obvious to me that this is a stupid mistake, why are these incredibly accomplished people making that? Hmm. And, and that never stopped nagging me. I, I tell a story in the, in the introduction of uh, you're about to make a terrible mistake of what was actually my first study, my first project at McKinsey. So my first project is for a mid-sized French company at the time, um, led by a highly respected CEO, highly respected at the time, and even more highly respected thereafter. I mean, a a legend in his time. Um, And he asks us to get an acquisition in the US. And we evaluate the acquisition, and we come back with an absolutely crystal clear, unambiguous answer that says, it would be a crazy idea to acquire this company. Uh, there are no synergies to speak of. Um, the, the price is absurdly high. 
uh, that would be a massive value destruction. And you know, it's, it's usually not what consultants tell you when you ask them about acquisition, right? I mean, if they've got any incentive, it's to, <laughs> it's to tell you, you know, go ahead and do the deal and there will be juicy work to realize the integration and to organize the new company. So Absolutely, you know, yeah. When we say that, you, you can assume that we have no vested interest in, in saying that. And um, I remember vividly that meeting because at the time, the, the junior guys, it was still a very small firm, and even a junior guy like me was actually in the meeting with the CEO and were presenting the findings. And, and the CEO says, yeah, I totally get what you're saying, but you, you've made a decision in how you analyze this that is completely wrong. You've actually looked at this, this US acquisition, in dollars. I look at it in French francs. And so there is a moment of silence where we say, well, but it is a U.S. company. It produces cash flow in dollars. It should be evaluated in dollars. And the CEO says, well, but except I'm going to borrow in French francs to make this dollar acquisition. And I'm pretty sure that the exchange rates are going to work out in the right direction so that it's actually going to be a very good bet for me. So it's just a currency arbitrage. So he was, say, he was basically so keen to justify this acquisition that he was betting a couple billion dollars at the time on a currency uh, bet, basically, that, uh, that he ended up winning. And he, you know, he did turn out to make a brilliant acquisition. So he did find banks that at the time were willing to fund a U.S. acquisition in a different currency, which I guess today would be more difficult. Uh, he did convince his board that it was a good idea, which with a decent board nowadays would be more difficult. And he got lucky and <laughs> the dollar did go up against the French franc. It was, I guess, low at the time. It, it went up. And so his, uh, his French franc uh, acquisition ended up you know, once converted into French francs looking very cheap. And he concluded that he was a genius and we had totally misunderstood the, the nature of the deal he was making, which I guess was true. So when I was seeing those cases of, uh, let's say, irrationality in our clients, you know, clients who were ignoring our advice after paying a lot of money for it and who were you know, not, not always lucky about it, right? The example, I, the, the story I told you is one of the CEO who got lucky, but actually we saw a lot of clients who ignored what we told them, made a big mistake, lost their jobs, lost their company billions. So, you know, serious consequential mistakes. Um, and the explanations I was getting from my colleagues when I was asking them, you know, oh, you've been here a long time. I'm just a kid. Tell me what's going on here. They, they fell into two groups. One group would tell me, well, you know, this CEO, he's really not that good. Uh, and, you know, he won't last. He, he will be kicked out sooner or later. I was thinking that's really odd because these people have been selected to be CEOs, you know, after a long, painful process, they've had very successful careers. If they are so bad and we're so smart, why are they the CEOs of the large companies and we're just a bunch of guys advising them? And the other half of my colleagues would say, you know, he's a real strategic genius and a brilliant visionary who perceives things that we don't and who has you know, a much deeper and fuller understanding of the world of business than we and our petty models can ever possess. And I was thinking, well, if that's the case, why is he wasting his money asking us our advice, <laughs> only to ignore it afterwards? 
So neither of these two explanations seemed very satisfactory. And what seemed even less satisfactory was the fact that there was no consensus on whether the guy was a genius or a complete loser. Um, and if there was no way of knowing ahead of time if the man was a genius or, or, or completely stupid, it couldn't possibly be a very good explanation because it wasn't a very useful one. So after some years, uh, I realized that there was actually some serious research into why people, and especially smart people, make bad decisions and make predictable mistakes. That's what behavioral psychology teaches us. That was, that's what behavioral economics has become. And I thought we need to uh, try to translate those ideas, to apply those findings to the world of strategic decision-making, which, of course, I wasn't the only one to do, uh, and a lot of people were doing that. And that's what led me to the topic that is now called behavioral strategy. So it's fascinating. So you were doing this in McKinsey and um, applying uh, behavioral strategy in that setting quite successfully. Uh, uh, McKinsey becomes a leader uh, in the consulting world in this type of uh, approach. And you rise, you raise to the dizzying heights within McKinsey, one of the one of the company's uh, key leaders. And then you decide to go into academia. So wh what, 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 what happened there? The two events are entirely related. Uh, I, I spent 25 years at McKinsey. Uh, I was not to, at, at Dizzing Heights, as you say, I was one of the senior partners, but you know, there are many senior partners in McKinsey. I was a leader of one of the practices, but there are many practice leaders for, and, and those are rotating positions. So you know, I wasn't the, the managing director of the firm or anything like that. Not, not that anyone offered me the job, but I <laughs> wouldn't have been very excited about having those kinds of positions in a, a consulting firm. The, the thing that I realized after a while was that, one, I was, uh, you know, however exciting it is to be a strategy consultant, I was bored of doing the same thing after 25 years, which is not unusual in any job, even in the consulting job. And second, that the part of the job that I lacked most was actually this hobby of mine, the, 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 the research that I was doing on the side. The, the main job that you have as a consultant is to serve your clients, of course. The, the second or, or, you know, or, or other first job that you have is to develop the people who work with you and to uh, coach and uh, excite and, and motivate the people who work with you. Um, and you know, those are the two things that really matter. There is a third thing that is, you know, is, is basically a hobby, which is to uh, contribute to the firm as an institution. Some people do it through leadership roles, like being practice leaders and office managers and those kinds of things. And some people, like me, do it by building intellectual capital. And I had always been uh, more excited about that than about other aspects of being a, a leader of the firm. Uh, and it was quite natural to think, um, you know, what, what could a second career consist of? Well, it could consist of trying to uh, live in this world of ideas, but also to make those ideas practical and, uh, and useful for executives. And that's what I try to do now. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not aspiring to be an academic in the same sense as many of my colleagues at HEC uh, who... Uh, publish in the top-rated scholarly journals uh, and go through you know, six iterations of their peer-reviewed articles before 
they get published in a scholarly paper. I do this from time to time, but frankly, not at the uh, not in the same way as many of my colleagues. What I can do, and I do hope I do, is to uh, be somewhere at the the junction between the world of practice and the world of theory, and to try to make that junction function more effectively because it doesn't work that well. <laughs> yeah, in fact, that that's uh, interesting because that's exactly where we would we would kind of position Trium in in that in that yeah. space. And there's quite a bit of research actually that shows that creativity um, and innovation really happens at the edges of, of different uh, disciplines or organizations. And uh, I think that you are incredibly humble in that you are a, a massive contributor at those at that overlap between the practical world and the academic world in this. Well, I, I, hope, I hope I'm a contributor, but it's a different type of contribution that, that I hope uh, you know, both, both worlds recognize, uh, but it's a different type of contribution from what executives do on their side, which is to run businesses, and what serious academics do on their side, which is to write papers that advance the state of the art of management for you know, a couple of hundred of specialists who are able to understand what they are talking about. <laughs> so, so you live in between there these. There needs to be something in between those two worlds. Yeah, and you and you and you occupy I live in that you... gap. Yeah, yeah, you live in that gap. We, we, I guess both of us in some ways live in the gap. I came to it from the academic side and moved yes, more to absolutely. the other side, and you came. So, so here's a question for you. I always think it's interesting. You know, having lived in both worlds. What mistake do you think business school professors make most often when they're talking about businesses or trying to help businesses or business people? Do you, do you see a kind of common misunderstanding between the two worlds? Oh, yes, but I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's, um, it's, uh, it's a function of each side's incentives and, uh, and mindsets. If you are a business school professor, you live and die by what you publish. And you publish on uh, specially on arcane specialist topics in journals that not you know, a single executive could possibly think of reading. Um, and that's what matters to you. And, you. and the reason it matters to you is because that is how your school rewards you. That is how your peers um, recognize and... Uh, and uh, and admire you, which in turn is what matters to the schools because they are rated and ranked on their research. So this whole game, which is useful, I'm, I'm not at all saying it is, you know, it is uh, a lot of people criticize it superficially by saying, oh, it's complete, um, it's a complete waste of time and it's totally useless to practice. I don't think at all that it's useless. I think it is, you know, some of it, like all research will be useless, of course, but and that's the that, that's the nature of research, but a lot of it will actually turn out to be useful. Except that before it can turn out to be useful, it needs to be applied, translated, communicated, disseminated, um, and that's a part of the work that business schools have neither the incentives nor the inclination to uh, spend a lot of energy on. Uh, as I was researching my latest book, I was reading some of the research on this gap between theory and practice. And um, some of the, the scholars who write about it say, um, well, of course, you know, we, we all know that it would be a complete career suicide mistake 
to write a book or to write a paper in Harvard Business Review. <laughs> and, and they say this, you know, they, they don't just say this as, as something that is worth discussing or that they say this in passing as something that is so obvious that it barely deserves mentioning yeah, as com common as knowledge. Yours. Everybody has it. Yeah. Exactly. You know, we, we all know this, right? And you know, it's, it's kind of a shame from the perspective of executives that all this talent, all this energy, all these billions of dollars of money that is invested in management research is not at least for a small fraction of it focused on actually helping people who manage stuff. <laughs> that would, no, that would no. seem to be a, a reasonable thing to do. I completely agree. And I, I think what's interesting is um, in other industries, there's always a division of labor um, and uh, it's the most efficient way to do things. But in academia, uh, one is expected to be both a knowledge creator a knowledge disseminator, an administrator, a teacher. Um, and we, we try to make that, you know, the ideal academic is does, that does all those things at the same time. Um, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, of, you know, if you think of universities evolved out of uh, religious organizations, mm -hmm. it'd be as if we expect our key theologians to be also the best preachers. You could be writing the best theology ever and having deep, deep religious thoughts, but if there's nobody on Sunday to go to the uh, church and uh, and guide or or use this great knowledge to help people in their lives, it seems to be a wasted opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's um, th th there is the model you describe, and there is a different model which I think the most business schools would aspire to now, which is to be basically full of theologians. Uh, who who don't bother to preach? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and a lot of the incentives are on the on on the writing of theological treatises as opposed to the uh, the, the number of people who are coming to hear you preach, hmm. um, which makes a lot of sense because you know it's it's important to well, let's let's stop with the metaphor here, but it, it's important to do great research. Yeah. Uh, it does matter. It does distinguish the great institutions from the ones that are uh, you know, just providing good teaching, which, of course, we hope the, the best institutions provide too. Um, but we shouldn't forget the, the, the actual, not just the teaching, of course, but the actual interaction with the world of practice. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I'll tell a very short story. Um, I was very early in my career. Uh, I had not yet received tenure, and I had what was called a mid-tenure review. So this is after two and a half years or so. And they were going through my publication, said the publications look fine, and, and they got to my teaching, and they said, we have to talk about your teaching. And I thought to myself, well, I, I think my teaching's quite good. I, you know, I have good evaluations. I, I don't know what you're, what you're talking about. And he said, exactly. Your evaluations tell me that you're spending way too much time preparing for your classes. <laughs> what what you need to do you this is too good what you need to do is have really kind of my advice is to aim for mediocre scores and take whatever time you save and get another article published oh that's extreme it's uh it's <laughs> but it's but it's telling yeah um yeah so that's that's the, that's the academic world. But uh, luckily, where there's things, there's there's space for things like Trium that will try to bridge those gaps. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why 
this program and many others like it uh, are have been so successful. Um, one of the things that I thought was very interesting is you said that H you were saying about HBR publications uh, being kind of the worst thing that can happen. Although you published a piece um, that's been hugely influential um, called Before You Make That Big Decision. And this was with your uh, old colleague from McKinsey, I believe, uh, Lovallo, is that right? And then also with uh, Daniel Kahneman. And I, I'm just wondering, I can see how you and Lovallo got together and worked together. So how did uh, Kahneman get in on this uh, dynamic duo? So um, Lovallo, uh, I, I, I brought in Lovallo to, to, to work with me. I think he, he had some sort of connection with McKinsey before, but I, I sort of uh, made the, the rather unusual effort at the time and, and probably still today of engaging in a long-term collaboration with someone in academia, which is not very uh, easy to do when you're in consulting. Um, and it's actually an, an interesting thing to, to understand now that I'm on the academic side, it's easier to understand too. When you are uh, in a consulting firm and you have a very different set of objectives and you have a very different time frame from the academics. Um, and so from the perspective of some of the academics that we were working for, the, the way this felt was, uh, I'm going to spend a day with a bunch of consultants and they are going to squeeze out of me everything that I know. Uh, of course, they are going to pay me for a day of consulting to do that. But, you know, I spent 10 years coming up with that research. And then they are going to use it and trivialize it and, <laughs> and, and use my name and my reputation <laughs> to, uh, to turn it into something oversimplified for commercial purposes. Um, which, of course, is not what uh, serious academics are interested in doing. So, um, and, and that, of course, was done with the best of intentions from the side that I was on at the time. Sure. Um, so what we tried to do when, when, we, you know, when we became aware of that perception is to actually engage in longer-term collaborations with academics who are actually willing to partner because there's a lot that a consulting firm brings to the researchers, just like there is a lot that the researchers bring to the consulting firm, uh, namely the access to data, the access to surveys and to panels and to you know, all sorts of tools that are difficult for researchers to put together. For instance, one of the things that we were able to do with Lovello when we started working on behavioral strategy was to do large scale surveys of how investment decisions were made uh, using the databases of the McKinsey Quarterly and other McKinsey clients and so on, um, which is very valuable to research. And we, we tried to have a sort of dual track where uh, we would publish both a paper for managers in typically McKinsey Quarterly, uh, which would take maybe a year to come out. And then there would be another scholarly paper based on the same data set and the same basic idea, which would take probably two or three years to come out because that's the, the, the time to get a scholarly paper out. Um, and which of course would be presented differently and would actually talk about the theory and would talk about the methods and would talk about all those things that readers of uh, HBR or McKinsey Quarterly couldn't possibly care about, uh, but that actually uh, matter a lot to scholarly journals for excellent reasons. 
So we, we tried to engage in a collaboration, in, we, we, we did engage in a long-term collaboration that produced uh, quite a few of these end products on both sides, which on a selfish note gave me an opportunity to see the difference between these two worlds and to get to understand what the world of academia was, which I had no idea about. Um, and you know, and was part of my own journey to decide that I wanted to be uh, working on that side of the gap later on. And at some point in that journey, um, Dan Lovallo uh, said, why don't we ask Danny Kahneman if he would also like to uh, join us and to write a paper on the importance of biases in strategic decisions. And we, and we wrote that HBR piece, which, uh, as you pointed out, has been quite influential. And that was just because Dan knew Danny. And so I got to know Danny, and we've been collaborating on a few other things since then. That's fantastic. And we are actually collaborating now on, on a book. Ah, well, looking forward to that. Absolutely. And, and anybody who hasn't read that piece, um, it is a, a fantastic, not only description of the theory, but as you said, from the point of view of someone really asking themselves, how will this or how can this be useful to somebody? How can we make it into some sort of tool that can help people avoid um, these kinds of biases and mistakes? And it's it, basically it, a checklist. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's a very simple 12 point checklist that tells you if you're about to make a strategic decisions, what are the 12 biggest questions you should ask yourself to see if you've fallen uh, prey to one of the biases that tend to affect strategic decisions. And absolutely for all of you out there who, because of the current Corona situation are making massive decisions right now in hugely uncertain times, uh, this is a good time to apply something like this checklist. Also, you know, I've had the pleasure of seeing you teach several times. And in fact, I've had the pleasure of co-teaching with you, which is, which is just a real uh, delight. And the pleasure is mutual. Uh, but, and well, thank you very much. And one of the things I really like that you use is your playing cards. Um, and these cards about the biases. I, I wonder if you could tell folks who haven't had the pleasure of having you or going through this exercise, because I think it just really encapsulates, it's a perfect example of the mixture between theory and practice that we're talking about living between these two different worlds. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how you got that idea and how it works and, and why it's, you think it's been such a successful tool? So one of the things that we, that we used to give a lot of thought to uh, at McKinsey and that I'm sure my former colleagues still are giving a lot of thought to is once you have ideas that you want to communicate to your clients uh, or recommendations or you know, thoughts that you want them to make their own, how do you get them to make the ideas their own? How do you get them to appropriate the ideas? And one of the things that um, research and experience actually both tell you is that if you want people to make ideas their own, you need to let them literally take them into their hands. And cards are a great, great way to do that. There are other ways. You can play with decks of slides and have them rearrange the slides in different orders. You can have uh, gallery walks where you put your slides on walls and you ask them to move behind the walls and behind the slides and look at them as opposed to having them sit through a PowerPoint presentation. So all those ideas are the same. I mean, all those tools 
have the same goal, have the same objective, which is to get people to make ideas their own as opposed to telling them what they should believe and have them be in the position of the passive receiver. Uh, cards are a great way to do that because people can not only literally take them into their hands, but they can actually choose which ones they take into their hands and which ones they reject. So whenever you've got a long list of things, a long list of ideas, uh, that you would like people to think about. Uh, I guess you could walk them through a 40-page PowerPoint presentation with one idea on each slide, but 99% you know, of them would fall asleep before slide 10. <laughs> or you can give them a deck of 40 cards and tell them these are the 40 tools that you can use to solve a particular uh, problem. Um, as you think about the situation or the case that we're thinking about now, which ones seem to be relevant? And it's striking whenever we play with these things, you've seen this, Matt, whenever we play with these things, how quickly people actually converge for a given problem. Of course, it's not the same cards for any problem, but for a, in a given situation, for a given case that they need to solve, how quickly they sort through those ideas and how quickly they converge on the same tools or in some slightly different versions of the same tools, uh, because people are actually very quick. And, and very smart. And when you give them you know, a choice between 40 or 50, or I, I don't remember how many cards we have, ideas, they very quickly sort through the ones that are irrelevant, 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 irrelevant. Oh, this one maybe, this one absolutely, this one maybe. You know, and, and when they do this as a group, very quickly they get to uh, a simple answer. So it's, um, it's not just about biases, this idea. Whenever you've got something that you want to communicate, and it's a choice that people have to make, thinking about which tools you can use and thinking about how they can actually take those tools in their hands actually helps. Yeah, the tactile nature of it is fantastic. Yes, yes. Yeah. And we usually, I mean- Not, not very COVID-19 friendly though. We'll have to figure out. <laughs> well, everybody will have to have their own deck. Yes. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, as you were speaking, I, I think that we kind of implicitly ask people to do that in their minds when we're lecturing, right? We assume that yeah. there's going to be some material that we just ask them to attend the whole time and then pick out kind of in their own minds the things that are going to be most interesting. And and the idea that you convert this into a tactile, actual thing that you touch and feel and move around in a physical space it works just just brilliantly. And I, and I, and I, I uh, again, for anybody who uh, wants to, to to check this out that you they can contact or we'll put contact details on the on the web page that that promotes the podcast but it's just a really fantastic idea i love the idea of the tactileness of it the moving the physical space making these kind of subjective ideas physical embeds it in people's minds in a way that that otherwise wouldn't happen so, yeah, and, and there is also a, and it, it also acts as a physical reminder when people take this back to their offices, mm. assuming they still have offices, uh, that you know they have this on their desk, and it reminds them of the session they've attended and and the thing they literally physically took away from it. Yeah, yeah. So let's. I mean, you mentioned uh, you know assuming they have offices, this is the kind of big elephant in the room now. Uh, so we're obviously living through some pretty extraordinary times. Um, how do you think we're doing as far as uh, individuals, politicians, businesses, society of avoiding the kind of worst biases that may come up during this situation? I mean, I, 
I, I'm giving a, a keynote speech soon and they asked me to talk about this. And I was thinking, you know, we're living in this massive uncertainty and this is the, the very environment. It, it, all the red lights should be flashing right now on this is the this is the kind of environment where, where we're likely to make some some kind of, as you said, smart people making silly mistakes. I just wonder, how do you think we're doing? Well, I think it depends a lot on 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 who you're talking about. Um, I, I think no one is doing perfectly because this is a very very difficult situation, and I'm you know, definitely not pointing fingers or 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 giving lessons or or saying oh so and so should have done differently and should have done this and should have done that. I'm emphatically resisting the temptation to say. Um, let's keep score and let's see who, who did wrong and who did right. Because this was truly an unprecedented, very, very, very difficult situation. So, you know, I, I tend, and, and not, not, I'm, I'm not naive, but I think we need to give our leaders the benefit of the doubt here uh, and to assume good faith and to assume that um, when people did what they did, they were uh, they were trying to do the right thing. I'll take an example to, uh, to illustrate what, uh, what I mean. In France, we actually had an election, the first round of the municipal elections on uh, Sunday, March 15th. I was, and a few people, well, quite a few people were, but not the majority, convinced that that was a crazy idea at the time. I had written about it. I had, you know, uh, about a week earlier, I had said, you know, it's, it's crazy to have an election in these times. Now, what happened? Um, the president consulted with the heads of the political parties, and they all said, no, we won't let you postpone the elections. Um, one of them said, if you do that, we will, we will call it a coup. We will say, it, you're, you're doing it for political purposes because you are afraid that you're going to lose the elections and we think it would be undemocratic and it, it would actually be a coup. So here's the situation you're in, if you are the president or the prime minister of this country. And you know, it's similar decisions happen everywhere. You hesitate, you're not sure, of course, that this is going to be the massive crisis that we're talking about, because a lot of people think, well, it's no big deal, it's just a flu, remember. Um, and you're thinking, if I try to uh, impose lockdown or other brutal measures before people have become aware of how severe the problem is, there's going to be massive pushback and massive backlash. And not only on the political side, but there's a risk that people will actually not uh, abide by the measures that I'm talking about. Right? If you tell people, stay at home, but they haven't realized that it's in their interest and in, in, in everybody's interest to stay at home, the risk is that they won't. And you simply don't have enough cops to force them to do that. So yep. you, you, you can't be too far ahead of the curve there. You can't be too far ahead of the public understanding of the problem. You need to, you, you need to be slightly ahead of the people you're leading, but you can't be miles ahead because they won't follow you. And you're asking them to do some very, very crazy, uh, unheard of stuff. You know, we're going to ask you to lock down and stay at home 24 hours a day and to stop working and to stop going out. You know, that's wild, if you think about it for a second. Absolutely. That's completely yeah. crazy, right? So you know, if you say that 
way before people have become aware of the problem, uh, you, you may do more harm than good. If you wait too long, you, as, as some countries clearly did, uh, you also do much, much more, obviously, a lot more harm than good. So that's the problem. I mean, that's one of the problems. The problem is how do you lead by being slightly ahead of the people you're leading, but not too far ahead. I think yeah. that was one of the big issues at the beginning. And of course, a, a, a complication to that uh, is that if you get it right, you don't have the death and destruction that you would have anyway. So those people who were against clamping down can say, look, it's not as bad as you said it was going to be. Why the hell did you make us do this? They could, although in this case, you, you could argue that you, you already had uh, China and Italy hmm. uh, and Spain uh, showing you exactly how bad it would become if you didn't act. So in, in general, you're right. One of the problems that people have when they, when they take preventive measures is that you never know what would have happened. Nassim Taleb has a great um, thought experiment about this in one of his books. I don't think it's the Black Swan. I think it's another one. Suppose you are a CIA analyst who has figured out sometime around 1999 that a great way for a terrorist to make a hit would be to get with a simple knife into the cockpit of an aircraft. Yeah. And that would, be, that, that would do terrible damage. And so somehow you managed to convince the government to impose a new regulation on every airline that every cockpit should have a bulletproof door and, and all the stuff that has become standard now. Of course, September 11 never happens. And you will you know, be remembered as the bureaucrat who imposed a completely unnecessary regulation on every airline in the world. <laughs> just, just another piece of red tape that the government is forcing us to do. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It, it, is, it is interesting because I, I, I completely agree. I think you're exactly right on the analysis. However, it makes me a little bit frightened about global warming because in, in this crisis, as you said, you have to be a little bit ahead. People had China and Italy to look at and say, we don't want to have that happen here. And the problem with global warming, as many people believe, is that by the time that we see the negative consequences and therefore people are going to be willing to take these extraordinary steps to change their behavior as we do, as we did with the COVID-19, at that point, it will be too late to avoid the crisis. It, it, there'd be no way to, uh, in this, using the language from the coronavirus, uh, there'll be no way to flatten the curve at that point because the time span is just so long. So it's a kind of a, a, a type of problem that is, I think Kahneman has said in the past, it is the perfect storm of decision-making. Absolutely. It is, it is absolutely the perfect storm. Um, not just of human and, and psychological decision-making, but also of political and geopolitical decision-making, because it also would require a degree of coordination at a global level um, and of uh, cooperation at a global level, where um, we would all have to stop seeing this in terms of who wins and who loses, and there are clearly countries and nations that are winners and others that are losers if we reduce emissions. There are clearly um, segments of the population that are winners and that are losers. So 
there is that dimension too. It's an absolute perfect storm, both of you know, single person level decision biases and uh, organizational and geopolitical um, inability to, to decide. Collective action problems. You know, what's yes. in your individual interest isn't going to be in the interest of the, of the whole. My take on this, by the way, Matt, is if there is, just like COVID-19, by the way, if there is a solution to this problem, it will have to come from science and technology. Um, I, I think we, we should, and, and this is not meant to say we shouldn't do anything, right? We should do everything that we can about global warming and about climate change and about reducing emissions and so on. But all the information we have tells us that anyway, that will not be sufficient to avert very severe consequences if we don't have some sort of technological breakthrough. Uh, so I think a, a big part of what we do should be to invest sufficient energy and funds into research to try to find breakthrough solutions. Likewise, for COVID-19, you know, we can talk about masks and tests and tracing apps until we're blue in the face. But as long as we don't have either a treatment, a cure, or a vaccine, uh, the problem is unlikely to be completely eliminated. No, I completely agree. I, I think that's it's also interesting to see, you know, that the body when attacked by a, some sort of outside malevolent force uh, creates antibodies and those antibodies, of course, eventually if they can defeat the, the invader and then you retain the memory in your antibodies, if you ever get attacked by the same virus or again, that you have some sort of immunity to this. And in some ways, if you look at some of the successes of South Korea uh, and other Asian countries, in some sense that they had already been invaded by a contagion before of SARS, and they kind of had the institutional structures in place and the memories in place to try to respond, almost like antibodies in their body politic. And one of the things that I wonder is that, do you think that countries now that are dealing with the COVID crisis will create kind of effective antibodies against these kind of small tail or fat tail risks in the future to enable them to be better able institutionally and politically to respond to long-term risks? I don't think um, we, we can respond to something like climate change in, in, in the same way that we responded to COVID. I think, I mean, let me first respond to the first part of your question. The, I think the, the fact that the Asian countries were so much more responsive is clearly, you call it antibodies, but it, you know, we, it, 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 I use a different metaphor. I'm, I see this as a clear case of mental model biases, of, of you know, the, 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 the way you look at a problem being shaped by your previous experience of similar situations. Whenever we face a new situation, we ask ourselves, what bucket does this fall into? What does this look like? What mm. sort of problem is this? And it was very clear, if you analyze the way various countries were responding, that in Europe, we were thinking, well, this is a sort of flu. Every doctor, at least in France, I'm sure it was the same in the UK, was saying, well, you know, this is probably a more severe version of the H1N1 flu that we had in 2009. 
but it, it's a different virus, of course, but it is the same sort of phenomenon, maybe a bit worse. Meanwhile, the Asians were saying, well, this looks a lot like SARS. It's in fact the same family of virus, exactly. maybe a little less severe, but still it's in that family, right? Now it's somewhere in between. It's, it's, it's not exactly either, but the fact that you frame it as belonging to the broad category of something terribly dangerous like SARS, which you wish you had responded to sooner and harder if you're in Asia, as opposed to framing it as something like the flu, which you have some experience, at least in France, of having overreacted to. And we have a history of politicians being blamed for squandering money on uh, overreactions and overstocking of vaccines and masks and supplies uh, when it was in fact not such a big deal. So you know, that mental model, that way you look at the threat is clearly a factor. Now, would that apply to something that is, again, in a completely different category like climate change? I don't think we have any category for that. We don't have, you know, we, we can't say, oh, well, last time we faced an existential risk. <laughs> Here's how we dealt with it. The closest analog we have, and it's in fact used quite often, is how post-1945 the world got together to try to control the use of nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. Um, and the, the solution that the, the equilibrium that the world found to solve that problem is first not the greatest equilibrium that one can dream of. The, the mutually assured destruction uh, setup is you know, not, if you think about it, the, the best, most stable state that you can think of. Uh, but more importantly, it's completely inapplicable to the problem of, uh, of, of global climate change. So we, we simply don't have uh, a paradigm or a, or a mental model that we can apply to the situation. That's what makes it so, well, that's one of many things that make it so hair-raisingly terrifying. Yes. And in addition, I think one of the biases that we've seen with corona that, that also plays into the environmental, potential environmental disaster is this idea of a normalcy bias. I mean, I think that I don't know about you, but even at the beginning of this coronavirus back in February and March, I, I was frightened by it. But I also, whenever I would start to take actions, like maybe go and buy pasta or uh, make sure I had plenty of tinned tuna and things like this in the house, there was something in the back of my head saying, you know, come on, it's not going to be this bad. You know, I, I, it, do, are really people going to be, you know, is this is this going to become kind of like one of the movies where there's piles of dead bodies in the road and all of this stuff? And is, is civil disorder going to break out? It, it was very hard for me to kind of think that it, things were going to be that different. It seemed somehow alarmist. And I think in the environmental space, it's the same way. It's very hard for us to kind of imagine, you know, no more rain or these yeah. kind of positive. Well, let, let me tell you a story. I mean, it is a personal story, but about uh, probably very early March or late February, I became very worried about this coronavirus thing, which wasn't called COVID-19 at the time. And I became worried enough that I called Danny Kahneman, who was about to come to Paris, who was planning a trip to Paris to work on our joint project. I told him, you should cancel your trip. Uh, this is the evidence I have. And the thing that had struck me was that at the time, the number of reported cases in France was actually very low. It was something like a dozen. But I actually knew three of them. 
Ah, okay. I, I didn't know them personally, but I was two degrees of separation from three of them. And that had made a big impression on me. And so I called Danny and I tell him, look, that's the situation. And Danny quite rationally told me, you're crazy. You're overreacting to a weird freak coincidence, which is that you happen to know three or to, to be two degrees of separations away from uh, three people out of 12. Really, this isn't a big issue yet. We will reconsider when it becomes one. And a week later, Danny actually called and said, it has become a big situation. I'm not coming, I'm canceling my trip, thank God, because by the time he would have been there, the, the borders would have been closed and so on. Yeah. So the point here is not that I had any foresight of any kind. It's that the thing that made me realize sooner than most people that, that, that this was a real problem was in fact completely irrational. Sure. I wasn't any, I was, certainly wasn't any smarter. I was, I was even less rational than most people in that I was overreacting to, a free, and, and I had to admit, yes, I was overreacting to a free coincidence. You're right, Danny. So it's very, very hard to be rational about those things. It's very, very hard. When you see people around you behaving normally, you think, yeah, I'm being paranoid. You know, why am I stocking up on, on toilet paper? I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Exactly. Yeah. Until everybody does it. And then, and then you look fantastic and you made, you look fantastic, even though you made your decision at the time, as you said, it might've been completely irrational. Yeah, completely. So first of all, thank you being so generous for your time. We're, we're almost finished. I, I just have a couple questions for you. I, I'm really looking forward to your new book coming out. Tell, tell me what, what's new in it. What, what should we look for? So the, the book that is coming out in July, which is called You're About to Make a Terrible Mistake, is uh, a book about how to turn the insights of behavioral strategy or behavioral economics into very practical things that executives can use in their decision making. The basic idea here is that, um, yes, you should learn to recognize the biases and the typical traps that they create in strategic decisions. There's nine typical traps that I identify and that I give lots of examples of. But the basic message is recognizing those traps, learning to see them is not enough. Just because you learn to recognize the overconfidence trap or the, the trap of relying too much on your intuition or the trap of falling for a mental model, as I described about COVID-19, uh, or the trap of misunderstanding risk, no, you can learn to recognize those traps, but that's not going to solve your problem. What is going to solve your problem is if you rethink how you make decisions. And to do that, I talk about two basic principles, collaboration and good process, which are about uh, leveraging the collective intelligence of the people you have around you to make collective decisions in an organized uh, structured way. Now, when I say collective decisions, I clearly don't mean a vote or a democracy. I do mean that executives who are in charge or bo boards who are in charge should have the final authority. But how you organize consultation and learning and getting information and ideas from those around you matters a lot. And what process you use to make the final decision matters a lot. And I give a lot of examples of practical techniques you can use to do that which go from the very practical trick, tricks that you can use tomorrow morning in your next meeting um, to very fundamental changes in the architecture of decision-making in your organization. And all of them are about 
basically making your decisions more resilient to biases, less bias prone. Well, I'm really looking forward to, to reading it and, and uh, I'm looking forward to, I always look forward to our conversations uh, because I always learn so much. Um, look, one, one last question for you. Other than your book, have you been reading anything lately that you'd recommend for our Triumph community uh, to help them get over this uh, time in, in their house? Yes, I've been reading lots of very good books. So uh, let me give you one recommendation. Uh, I could give you more, but I'll, I'll give you just one because, and, and I want to single it out because it's a really, 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 really good book. It's called Loom Shots by Sophie Bacall. Um, it's, um, it's a book about innovation and innovators uh, that brings together a lot of the best ideas from research into what makes organizations and people creative, uh, and which is extremely practical in, um, and, 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 and very vivid and very exciting to read uh, in, uh, in how it describes how to make your organization most innovative. So that's the book I would most uh, enthusiastically recommend to a business audience these days. Sounds fantastic. Well, listen, you you were in the land of consultancy and you decided to take a uh, trip over into the land of academia and now you live in between and, and thank goodness for that because it's those, uh, your insights into both those worlds and excellent contributions in both those worlds make you in a, in a unique position uh, to help us understand and translate the theoretical information that's generated in those business schools into a way that can be useful for people, the practitioner. And, and, and that to me is, is where the value is created in this, in this whole process. So thank you very much. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.